Hey everyone, welcome back to it here in Apologetics. As always, brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Today I'm joined by Nick Quint. If you've listened to us before, I'm sure you know who Nick is. He's a pastor. He's a New Testament PhD student. He's a YouTuber, an author, all kinds of great stuff. But Nick, what's up, man? Not much, baby. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. I don't think any, anyone's ever called me baby to start off the show, um, but it's good to see you and glad you're here to talk about entire sanctification. Heck yeah. Thanks for having me on. Again, it's, it's, always, a, it's always a blast. <laughs> A blast. Michael Bird's rubbing in too much on you already. Um, but bit, yeah. before we get into it, could you just, in case someone doesn't know who you are, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm an associate pastor in Southern California. I am married to someone who's also doing her PhD. Uh, we are the proud parents of a now 11th month old uh, little boy who's currently asleep. May he continue to sleep throughout this time. Uh, and yeah, went to Fuller, went to Biola doing my starting my doctorate at Ridley and hopefully uh, was it fall and yeah and I wrote a, a book I podcast occasionally I do YouTube videos occasionally on uh, on this topic and yeah that's that's who I am dude I feel like I've known you for so long like I'm pretty sure I knew you before like no one was even born and now no one's like almost a year old it's kind of yeah. crazy yeah time like, flies especially with you got a pandemic going and everything <laughs> definitely i hope no one remembers me um through the digital world and through will. Uh, so let's get into the doctrine of entire sanctification um so you wrote a book a lot of a lot of it was about this doctrine and what's going on here would you talk about like what is this doctrine of entire sanctification yeah in a very brief nutshell of course it is the belief that the holy spirit uh, can entirely sanctify someone in this life. So there are kind of three, well, there's multiple models of sanctification, right? The, the process of being holy, right? There is uh, kind of the um, kind of the standard view, and there, there's multiple models within it, but essentially you have the view that sanctification is progressive, that, that is, it goes throughout the entire life and culminates in the eschaton. Uh, it's, it's so it, it continues on post-death, right? Uh, and entire sanctification, which is kind of within the Wesleyan or Methodist tradition, uh, or some assemblies of God, you know, strands and stuff like that, posits that entire sanctification can happen in this life before death. And mm -hmm. so uh, the distinction tends to lie in when does when does the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, accomplish this uh, reality for the believer, and when when does that happen? And I argue, and I think it's uh, I think it's a good case that it can be happen in this life uh, before we hit the eschaton. Mm, right. And so it's not about uh, just to give a disclaimer. It's not about not making mistakes. It's not about you know running a red light or or stuff like that. You know, mm. uh, but it's it's we would say it's the the willful intentional desire to sin to go against God's you know God's whatever we call God's law or God's calling, however that is. So it doesn't remove our humanness, but it does say our desire for sin becomes replaced over time with the desire to love God fully. And so, as Wesley called it, it's uh, it's whole it's holy and fully being in love with God, so that the desire for sin is utterly transformed. Right. Um, Dean Delanity says, "Let's get sanctified." So let's get sanctified and let's do this. Um, let's get sanctified. What, what are some of the reasons that someone would hold to entire sanctification? Uh, you wrote a book on this, so like, what's your case for it? Yeah. So uh, I would say uh, there's two or there's many strands of it but just kind of taking a, a broad biblical theological case rather than just diving into certain texts one is one strand i would argue is that jesus tells us to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect mm -hmm. and that's matthew 5 verses 43 through 48 a very extended famous discourse uh, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect or your father in heaven is perfect and that word of course can mean different things like mature or complete um but I, I would argue it has a sense of a moral component being uh, fully transformed into who God wants you to be and has kind of called you to be. And so I would say uh, Jesus kind of gives us, lays down the law in Matthew 5 about what that means. But also uh, the life of Jesus is perhaps the best representation of entire sanctification insofar as Jesus was without sin during his entire earthly life and died as a perfect sacrifice for humankind all of humanity. And so uh, the, the sinlessness of Jesus is also something that is bedrock Christology. You you have to, in order to be a, what we might call a traditional Christian, you affirm that Jesus was sinless his entire life. The thing then that becomes so powerful is that we're called to imitate Christ. And that's one of Paul's big doctrines of union with Christ is imitation of Christ. And I think that the life of Christ as sinless is something that we are to aspire to live into. And that is the call of holiness. And so I would argue Christologically, 
the, uh, the grounding of the of the doctrine of entire sanctification is in the very life and message of Jesus Christ. Now, so that's strand one. That's kind of one tier that kind of binds it together. The second tier would be Paul's kind of repeated call to be perfect in Christ or to be perfecting holiness in the fear of Christ or in reverence for God or something like that. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 1. That's uh, Colossians 1, 28. And there's other kind of big texts that kind of Paul sees himself as already sanctified and yet not yet fully sanctified, but he knows that's the mission to which he is to aspire to. And so I would say Paul kind of gives that sort of idea as well. And so you have those two strands. And then the third strand is what I would call, uh, I, I made up a new term in my head, the pneumatological eschatological paradigm, the Holy Spirit and eschatology kind of brought together. And that's kind of found in the doctrine of Pentecost, right? Acts 2, where the Spirit is poured out on all flesh and all flesh are now given a new kind of North Star, morally and theologically, Jesus as the North Star. If we are in the sea on a boat, we follow Jesus, we follow the North Star. And if that's the case, then the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, as well as our doctrine of eschatology, kind of bind together insofar as the Holy Spirit is working now to bring, uh, to ruin our the deeds done in the body, sin, uh, uh, sin, evil, death, Satan, all that sort of stuff. And that is a process that has begun now. And part of the mission of the church is to live into that new reality. And so I would argue, uh, just theologically, that uh, our doctrine of the Holy Spirit and our doctrine of eschatology kind of bind together to kind of pursue that idea. And that uh, idea would have impact on this life as well as on the uh, eschaton. So I would say those kind of three very terse uh, strands taken together, I think are quite powerful theologically. Mm. Right. So what I want to do now is just because you can like overlay the doctrine is just go into some of the like, just like main objections that I can't came up just kind of thinking about it and just like mm -hmm. that I've read. Um, and we'll get to see if there's just other ones that we didn't even bring up here. Um, but the first thing I think about is like, what about the idea that we're just slaves to sin? Um, it's kind of funny because I have like this Bible verse memory app and I was just doing it right before you logged on here. And the last verse I did was Romans 7, 24 through 25, where Paul talks about um, beating like this body of death. Um, and it's like a almost like a slave to sin. So what, one thing I wonder with the entire sanctification is if we're slaves to sin, can we really ever get out of it in this life? Like, wouldn't we need like a new body to kind of um, escape sin? So what do you think about that kind of idea? Oh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. There's a lot there. And so um, Romans 7, as you know, is debated over who's speaking and what is, is there a literary device going on there? Is What kind of rhetoric is Paul using? I think Paul is using a lot of the I, the person speaking as a, a reference to the person in Adam. And so uh, I take the Adamic view, and I think I did a, a debate on that. You can probably Google or you go look Google, look in YouTube for like Nick Quint Romans seven. It'll be a debate I had with um, I forget his name. He's a good guy, um, but I sent. But Romans seven is not talking about a perpetual reality of sin. It's talking about. Uh, the person in Adam, the person who's enslaved by the Adamic reality. And I think what Romans 7 is getting at is not the whole story because you have, you know, talking about how, um, you know, wretched person that I am in verse 24, um, mm -hmm. I, I do all this sort of stuff. And the, the, the law of sin and death is kind of this constricting, violent, corrosive thing that's seeking to ens enslave. But what does it say? It says, who will rescue me from this body of death? You know, and thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then, of course, we can move on into Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so mm -hmm. there is emancipation. There's freedom. There's all that sort of stuff. Now, Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 language of, you know, uh, suffering at the present time and looking for glory and, and groaning with the spirit as we await adoption. But then he goes on to say that the redemption of our bodies is kind of his main idea. And that is. Um, so I, I think it seems to suggest that our bodies now are being transformed in the sense of spiritual you know, discipline, spiritual formation, stuff like that. But we wait our full um, uh, uh, bodily redemption at the eschaton, at resurrection. But I think that doesn't imply that the spirit is not working on our hearts, minds, souls, whatever we want to call it. The spirit is at present right now. And I think while we hope for bodily resurrection at the at the future, that doesn't mean our mind is not fully transformed now or being transformed now because redemption has been activated, or we would say achieved in Christ. And now it's a process of living into that. So I think Romans 7 and 8 actually kind of support the the idea of entire sanctification, as long as we're not positing that once you are become a Christian, for lack of a better word, once you become a Christian, that it happens instantaneously. 
Um, there are some within the, the Wesleyan tradition, although they are in a minority, that argue that sanctification or second, the second blessing or whatever you want to call it is instantaneous. Once you have it, boom, you, it's bam, you got it. You're entire, and it's like, I think for some folks, that's maybe true. But I'm, I'm not keen on saying that has to be for everyone, because I know I certainly haven't been entirely sanctified. I can't. And my, my wife will certainly testify to that and all that sort of stuff, you know. And so I think there's um, I think as long as we're not assuming that entire sanctification means instantaneous sanctification, then we're on good grounds to kind of take Romans seven and eight as affirming the doctrine, albeit um, uh, in a more kind of uh, apocalyptic sense. So I don't know if that quite gets at your question, but I'm trying to kind of frame uh, the. No, frame yeah. I think it's great because you can't just like pluck a Bible verse out of context and be like, here, this just proved my point. You're, you're debunked. It's over. Right. Like you have to look at it in light of the whole passage. Yeah, and there's, and there's so there. much to – yeah, no, there's so much to it too because you've got this idea of being slaves to sin. And that on one sense, that's true. You can say the impact of sin or you know, uh, the mark of sin has been laid on our bodies. You know, we, we, we have that. And so we don't want to throw kind of that out and be like, no, we're fully fine right now. It's like, well, no, you look at the world, you read the newspaper, you get, you get on Twitter, you see all this sort of stuff. It's not, we don't live in a perfect reality. And I think what the hope is, it's both a hope and a real thing, is that our hope is for the future resurrection of our bodies. The, the we would, I don't like calling it spiritual bodies, but the pneumatic bodies, right? The bodies empowered by spirit. Um, and that means, of course, our bodies then are taken care of. You know, we are hidden with Christ and all that sort of stuff. But our minds are being transformed uh, through acts of worship. That's Romans 12. Uh, through the Spirit. That's um, that's Second Corinthians 3 through 4. And so there's kind of a bigger theological paradigm where the mind being transformed doesn't mean the body is discarded. But it means uh, the mind can be transformed and enti entirely sanctified now. And the body will essentially come to that point in the resurrection. So I'm not arguing for a sense of cosmological dualism or anthropological dualism. What I'm saying is the body may be destroyed, but God is is present with us through the spirit working to bring uh, to nothing the things that are corrosive and destructive for us. Mm. Right. Um, I think you are a physicalist, so that's kind of sad. Um, I am. You know, <laughs> for another day. Um, one thing that I want to just clarify here is um, just with like entire sanctification, it doesn't mean that like once you're entirely sanctified, you'll never sin again, right? It's just kind of like you have this mindset of you're just trying to revoke and remove like kind of like all sin from your life. Is that my following? It's a, it's a good question because there, there's two schools of thought on that. One is, quote, you can lose it like you can with salvation, right? You know, there's a mm -hmm. sense of a pot, you know, um, and I haven't fully decided. I, I think... I'm not a determinist or anything like that, theologically speaking. So I have some reticence to say once you've been fully sanctified, you can't be unsanctified. Um, and so I think it depends on more more where someone's coming from theologically. So say a Reformed uh, uh, or a Calvinist might say something along the lines of, yeah, once you've been fully sanctified, it's something that can't the, the spool can't be un re-unraveled. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's already there. And I, I'm sympathetic to that idea. Um, I, I don't find it to work entirely with what I think other texts in the New Testament say, you know, regarding apostasy or falling away or whatever. Um, and so I, I think on the one hand, I think it, it's something that can be damaged or diminished or lost. But the, th the trick is, and I, and I want to make sure this is clear, and I tried to answer this in the book, is being not being fully sanctified doesn't mean you're not a Christian doesn't mean you're not in Christ. It doesn't mean you don't have the spirit. It doesn't mean anything like that. The goal yeah. of the Christian life is to put to death the deeds of the body perfectly. And until that happens, we are still subject to sin, evil, and death. And well, we're still subject to sin, evil, and death. It's just a matter of are we participants with that brutal taskmaster that sin is called in Romans 7. And so I'm kind of, I haven't fully decided where I land on that. It's a good question. It's a hard question. Um, and I frankly, it's, I go back and forth, but I, I want to make it clear that whatever your view is on that, it does not mean that um, you're not a Christian if you sin. So mm. that's that's more what I'm trying to I'm trying to avoid the legalistic kind of kind of stuff there. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, we get a super chat from Zena K, which says Jesus bless you all. It's so kind of you. Thank you so much um, for your super chat and support. That means a lot. Um, one thing I want to talk about just a little bit more is like reading. Like I'm not a Paul expert by any means. Like you know a lot more about Paul than I do, and John who's listening, and everyone. Um, but when I read Paul, it, just, it seems like a little bit to me like he's just constantly in like this battle with sin. And mm -hmm. not just in Paul, but in, through the whole Bible, we see this like battle with sin. And it doesn't seem like I could read a character and be like, they're entirely sanctified. It's always like, it seems at least like from my perspective that people are always struggling. Um, so mm -hmm. if what's the deal with like entire sanctification? If it seems like all throughout the Bible, there are just people struggling um, with sin still. 
Yeah, and that's a really good question. Um, and there's something that Paul even says, uh, Philippians 3, right? There's kind of this, I have not been fully perfected, but I've I've obtained Christ. And there's kind of this dualistic mm -hmm. kind of language of of the war yeah. and stuff like that. Or, mm -hmm. or it's, it's athletic imagery in the New Testament. There's, it's athletic mm -hmm. imagery. And so you would say something along the lines of, um, Paul has not been fully sanctified yet, just to put it crude, that Paul has not been fully sanctified, but that doesn't mean he's not still striving for the goal of sanctification because he's obtained Christ. He's got, you might say, uh, to use Ephesians language, you've had the down payment of the spirit, you've had the down payment of Christ, and now you're living into that new inherited reality. And so I, I think there is something to be said about, um, I don't think scripture is filled with tons of sanctified little Wesleyans running around, you know, mo uh, and all that sort of stuff. But I do think, um, at the bare minimum, if my case is at least plausible, then there are grounds to believe it could happen and has happened, but it's certainly not happening to everyone. And I think that that gives us pause because it tells us, one, that we're not so special as to think that divorced from the church, divorced from scripture, divorced from the life of the mind, that suddenly we'll just be sanctified. You know, we, it's, we punt that entirely off. It tells us that the life for a Christian is a constant battle, not only against sin, but against being conformed to uh, conform to the image of of sin and death. Mm. And part of that is trying to live into the new reality. And it's something again won't happen overnight. Bar I mean, I can think of one or two personal examples where I have a friend who was on drugs, doing the whole you know the whole thing, um, and then the spirit just got him. The spirit got him, and it's not that he never sinned again, but that that taskmaster, that sin slave master, was gone. And that's a big part of it. And so I don't want to say the spirit works instantaneously or even through big things. But there are there is something to be said about maturity and growing that you would say maybe Paul was not the same person he was when he wrote, say, Romans that he was when he wrote for Thessalonians or, or what have you, or when he was 10 or 15 or 20. And I think we need to leave room for uh, for the spirit to work and also room for people to fail. And that's part of the the part of being the church. If the church is to be a place of refuge, then it's a place for sinners. Mm, right. Um, another kind of objection I want to throw at you here um, is this idea of like, would this turn salvation into like a workspace salvation? Mm -hmm. um, at least in like Protestant circles, it's very big on like the idea that you're saved and justified by faith alone. And you have a whole podcast, um, the Synergist podcast, that I apparently just is over, which is kind of sad. Um, but it goes, it goes into like, what does it mean to be a Christian salvation, all these things. Yeah. Um, so one thing I think a lot of Protestants could be concerned about here is, well, if we're just trying to, trying to attain perfection, wouldn't that make my salvation workspace then? Like I'm, I need to attain this like perfection. Um, like I can do it in this life. So it, it almost means like my salvation would be works then, right? It wouldn't be by faith. Mm -hmm. um, so it might be like confusion or something. Like how would you kind of deal with this kind of like question with regards to entire sanctification? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question too, and I, I think a lot of folks, and I think, I think what I see in a lot of Protestant circles, and I'm, I'm a, it's in my bones. I'm a Protestant. Sorry, I'm, I'm a Baptist. We, we, we like, <laughs> we like protesting. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think with the fear with a lot of Protestants is there's this kind of allergic reaction to good works, mm -hmm. and I think implicitly when we think like that, um, we're kind of we bought into the assumption that God should not be bought off. You know, it's kind of like we, you know, if we do good things, then we might buy God, you know, kind of buy God off from, you know, doing all the terrible things we do, you know, kind of thing. And I, and I want to say, I think it assumes kind of this weird paradigm about God where God is kind of this, this, you know, the, the teller at the bank, you know, mm -hmm. do yeah. you have enough to cure the deficit? And it's like, well, there are, there are transactional images in the New Testament. There's economic imagery and stuff like that. I'm not discounting that. Um, but what I think a lot of Protestants kind of their fear is, well, will my good works, am I trying to buy my way into heaven? And I said, well, that tells us more about your view of God than it does your view mm -hmm. of yourself. And I'm not saying the question is wrong, but I'm saying the question is not, it's not asking enough. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say is um, if you have the spirit, that means God has already moved. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the, as a Wesleyan who affirms the doctrine of prevenient grace, God has always been acting towards creation with redemptive and liberative means. God has always been the light trying to draw people out of darkness. That's John 1. And I think what, um, so I think what, so we're already assuming God has moved. God is active. God is working. It's apocalyptic. It's invasive. God is here and God is doing stuff. And so God inviting humankind to participate in the new reality of Christ through the spirit in God's new kingdom, doing that is not works because you're already invited to do something that God has been doing. So it's almost like what we would say in John's gospel, right? And John, we, I'm going through John four at the moment with uh, folks from church, and it's like God is or there. 
you're not the laborers, you're the harvesters. People mm. who've come before you have planted the seeds and grown the crops, and now you're here to reap the, the harvest. And I think that's kind of how life works. And I think um, that I, I think there are fears of legalism, but I think I think for me the question is not, am I trying to buy God off, or am I trying to, or am I thinking this way about um, getting into heaven? It's um, if in Romans eight, I think hits this perfectly. Uh, it's uh, so then I'm reading from um, verse 12. Brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But then the next clause is, it, but if, I would say, I would, my, my translation, if with the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're working with the spirit. There is a, I would argue, a participatory or a synergistic kind of model for how this works. But that presumes that the spirit has what the spirit wants from you and that is to live in harmony with what the spirit is drawing you to and so unless you believe that um you can't do anything you're a kind of an entirely passive vessel uh you're already doing stuff i mean what what else is the christian life about living and doing good works for the sake of others what what does it mean to love your neighbor well that's a good work god that pleases god god is very happy with that you know god wants us to do good things and that's so i don't know it's on the one hand i get it but i also think there's kind of this fear of oh we can't be too roman catholic it's like well maybe if we were just better at reading the bible we wouldn't ask these we wouldn't kind of have this kind of side eye shade salt throwing at roman catholics and it's like yeah they're wrong on a few things but that's I think the question is, if you're asking, are you asking the right question about who God is? And I think if you mm. get that question right, then the question of, you know, will my good works get me into heaven is just not the right, is not the big question. Mm. So I don't know if that right. helps, but. No, no, no. I think it does help because I think a lot of times in like Protestant circles, we, we're so insistent in like um, the substitutionary atonement. Or I know you don't hold up penal substitution, but like uh, this idea of like I'm a sinner and Jesus paid for it and I'm done. And then like, it's, it's settled and it's done here. Um, right. And I think it's helpful with what, with what you're bringing up here. Yeah. Thank you. No, I, and I'm not opposed to penal substitutionary atonement. Um, I just don't mm -hmm. see the penal aspect taught in the new Testament. I see other aspects of substitutionary atonement, but just not the penal aspect. So. Mm -hmm. Right. And speaking of Roman Catholicism there, there for a minute, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, another fun thing kind of going through there. Oh, we did have another super chat from Okia Sun. It says, God bless you guys. Loving this. Thank you so much for your support. It means a lot. I really appreciate um, your super chat. Thank you for your support. Um, but speaking of all kinds of fun stuff for the Roman Catholicism, let's talk about purgatory for a second here, which okay. is interesting because I didn't think that like any Protestants believed in purgatory, but I started to realize that like C.S. Lewis does, and even like Jerry Walls does, and there, there's yep. there's Protestants here and there that believe in purgatory. Um, and one thing I wonder, just thinking about like entire sanctification, is okay. So let's say that um, we can be entirely sanctified in whatever capacity that would really mean in terms of like our lives. Um, like I'm not entirely sanctified, you're not. Um, what if we die and we're not? Then does it just like go to the new creation where you get the new body and it's done and you're entirely sanctified, mm -hmm. or is it like purgatory um where you progressively like become entirely sanctified so would you think that like this doctrine would open the door to purgatory where kind of people who don't reach entire sanctification in this life would reach it in the next before like kind of like maybe like entering the pearly gates or whatever you know it's kind of murky yeah, yeah, water yeah. no I know, I know what you mean that's a good question i think um one, I'm not. A, I'm not theologically opposed to the idea of purgatory. I mean, Jerry Walls makes a makes a a, a, a good case for it. Um, what I I think I, I think what the New Testament is getting at is is there's a sense of, and you could have you could posit, for example, just me that purgatory is a particularistic uh, reality before, say, resurrection. Uh, and this would assume a, a dualistic paradigm, or at least probably mostly a dualistic paradigm, but let's roll with it. Um, but it wouldn't be, it would be particularistic, but not universal um, mm -hmm. or exhaustively universal. So you would have maybe, you know, let's say 5% of Christians uh, are not uh, fully sanctified or are, are fully sanctified. They wouldn't have to go there, you know? So purgatory would have a kind of limited or, uh, or, or, or particularistic kind of, it would be a particularistic mechanism to achieve entire sanctification. Um, I, I, I don't, but that's not classically as far as I know how purgatory has been viewed in the Roman Catholic Church. There's there's a lot more nuance to it, and I'm not as qualified to speak on the doctrine of purgatory. Um, but I, I think I, I think there is something to be said of, and, and this might just be how we view eternity, right? If, if we are, let's say the 5%, right? So the 5% are 
uh, we'll, now we'll do it the 1%. Let's make it better because we got the 1%. So you got the 1%, you know, the 1% make it in. They, they don't have to go through any of that. Uh, they're fully, they're resurrected. They're fully in the presence of God and as long as, along with the 99%. Well, then the question then becomes, well, how long does it take to be fully sanctified in new create in the new creation, right? Kind of the mm -hmm. new Jerusalem idea of Revelation, for example. And the question and the answer is, it doesn't matter because you're in heaven. Mm. You know what I mean? And so yeah. um, the question of entire sanctification um, post-death is it's not that it's irrelevant, but it's like you're in heaven. You're re if you're already resurrected, you're already in the eschatological you know, bliss, the, the new, the new stuff, you know what I mean? Uh, the new reality, the new kingdom. And so, uh, you could posit that purgatory is maybe a means to get there. Um, but I, I, I just simply don't think it's necessary to posit it. So you would have something along the lines of assuming my physicalistic anthropology, right? Yeah. Where you're not a soul, you're a body. Um, you die, at, let's say you've been entirely sanctified, the 1%, you, you go, you go into the ground and you're just, you're waiting for resurrection. You're to use a metaphor, you're asleep. Then the 99% are asleep, but when they wake up, they will have been resurrected in glorified bodies through the Spirit, and now they've got an eternity to experience union with Christ, to uh, be present with the Spirit, to talk with Jesus. And it's one of those things where once that happens, I'm not sure we'll be thinking about entire sanctification. We'll be thinking about the, the wonders of the unknowable things of the universe that God is now happy to show us. And mm -hmm. so um, purgatory for me just seems kind of uh, unnecessary at that point, if I'm just being theologically honest. But I, I think it's a very interesting question. I just, I, I think at that point, it's, you know, once you're in heaven, are you going to be thinking about it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm tracking it with you. Um, one thing that kind of comes up here thinking about like new creation, um, mm -hmm. this idea of like we're promised like new bodies, um, like there's a new heaven and there's a new earth and then we get a new body. Um, with entire sanctification, I wonder like um, if we could like attain this in this life, entire sanctification, um, what's the point of the new body? What is the promise of the new body? Like how does it relate mm -hmm. like to this life where we're going to be perfect and union with God and it's going to be beautiful? Um, mm -hmm. Like what's the purpose of getting a new body? If if we can be entirely sanctified like in this life like if we were couldn't we just have like the same body then well i think resurrection in many in some sense is the same body or at least it's it's a body that is uh to be careful with how i say it philosophically it's coordinate with the body that dies mm -hmm. it's not um I, I and i i think there's a sense in which the resurrection body is more than just physical but i think if you're using going what paul says paul says um uh, and I don't have the form, but pneumaticon soma, uh, soma, right? But it's spiritual body, but he's just, he's using an adjective to describe mm -hmm. a physical thing. So that kind of presupposes that whatever is resurrected is physical in some sense. Now, how that works, um, I don't know the mechanics of that. No one does, um, but that's something we hope for. Uh, I think what, I, I think the issue is with, with human anthropology and, and the problem of death, Right. That's kind of implicit. I think that the problem is the problem of death. And I think um, part of of entire sanctification is not meant to address the problem of death. That's what resurrections for what entire sanctification posits about this, the problem of sin is that uh, there's a missional component. There is a ecclesial component, meaning if you're if the Holy Spirit, if you and the spirit work together and it works out that you're entire, entirely sanctified in this life, it's not that it has anything to do with your physical body, although it might lead you to eat better. It might lead you to be spiritually more healthy, which might in turn affect your mental health. Um, so there are maybe, you know, aspects of that which are really important, you know, depression, you know, stuff like that. So maybe there is that element of it. I'm not saying depression and sin are, are, are related or anything like that. Um, but what entire sanctification is attempting to grapple with is the presence of sin now. And if that if a person is entirely sanctified, then, as Paul says, it's contagious. It, it, in First Corinthians 7, if you're married to you might even save your husband if if he is unbelieving, you might save your wife if she's unbelieving, you know, to the married to the married Christian right there. And so I think if we are working with the spirit, then entire sanctification is possible. But that impacts how we live our lives now and that uh, the removal of sin spreads amongst the local church. And that's why I think it needs to be grounded in the local church. Um, and I think the need for a new body is not quite the question because that is the the the, the resurrection of the body is a future it's a future thing uh, but we are essentially becoming conformed to, to the image of christ now with the hope of future resurrection 
And so mm. um, it's essentially an, an invitation to live now into Christ's new reality and with the hope that we'll be raised bodily from the dead, having been shown to be faithful and allegiant to Jesus and so on and so forth. Mm. Right. Um, we're going to have a couple more questions here that I have, and then we'll open up if there's any like live questions, things like that, for the last 10 minutes or so. Um, but I covered like five objections that I kind of drew up or thought about or read about. Like, what other kind of objections are there um, that are very common to like the doctrine of entire sanctification? Hmm. No, you've hit most of them. One of them is a, a reading of Romans 7 that posits that the person speaking is uh, is a Christian and is basically perpetually struggling in sin. Uh, it, it, the, the, the response is, well, it depends on how you read Romans 7. And I'm not being coy. That's just kind of how it is. You know, there's do a dozen ways to read Romans 7. And so that's one of the objections. The other objection kind of, uh, and you brought this up too, kind of hinges on the idea of, well, if you've been entirely sanctified, then this is an instantaneous thing. There's kind of this assumption that the spirit working has an instantaneous deterministic effect on people. And while I do think there may be some room for that, uh, I, I don't see that as as working in scripture as a model. We're told to, as Paul says, to be perfecting holiness mm. in the fear of Christ. So that implies both a telos, a there's a point or a goal that you're going towards, but you also are actively involved in achieving and attaining and pursuing that goal. So you mm. could say it's an already not yet kind of thing. But I think a lot of misconceptions are uh, worried about legalism, which I'm very much worried about as well. I Mm -hmm. I, I see where they're coming from on that. Uh, but I think if you are living in human, as you know, say the fruits of the spirit or, or how Paul says Christ live, you know, in humility, regard others as better than yourself and kind of that sort of ethical model, then you're not thinking about yourself. And am I being fully sanctified as if there are tears to being sanctified? It's something that just kind of happens organically through the spirit. And so what I kind of chuckle at is, um, the person who's entirely sanctified won't go around saying she's entirely sanctified. That's not the purpose of entire sanctification. It is the life you live in service to God. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, you know, you know, the, the humble person doesn't go around wondering if they're if or talking about how humble they are or, or mm -hmm. something like that, you know? Um, and so I think there's kind of just general misconceptions and there are some uh, conceptions like that, that I, I take seriously, like uh, very seriously, the idea of legalism that you have to do these checklist things in order to be sanctified. I don't think the New Testament grants you that. I do think the New Testament says there are ethical things that are required of the Christian, um, but I don't think there are checkpoints. And I, so I think uh, one is the charge of legalism, which I accept and also reject. I, I don't think it, le it leads to legalism, although it can lead to legalism. And two is uh, a view of sin that sin has a ton of, has consistent, operative power in the life of the Christian to the point where uh, the spirit cannot cannot overcome that or we with the spirit cannot overcome that. Mm -hmm. And so I think those two objections are probably the most pervasive that I've seen. Um, but I don't the others are a little more esoteric and they kind of rely on, you know, basically my response is, well, I'm not a Calvinist. So this it's kind of one of those things. I'm sorry that objection doesn't work for me. It, it assumes a reformed paradigm that I don't uh, mm -hmm. accept, and you know stuff like that. Um, but those are kind of those are at least some of the objections that I've heard that I found have some teeth, even if I don't think they're ultimately persuasive. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, one more question I have for you here, and then we'll go through any live questions. Um, is just like the application of this doctrine, because I think for someone like myself, like before, I never really thought about intoxication until like a year ago, I started to I read your book and I listened to a couple other things and I was like, oh, wow, this is actually a real thing. Like, I, I just always assumed that like, you know, we're sinners and we're sinners and it's just part of life. And that's the way it is until I get in the body. Um, but like, mm -hmm. what, what is the, like, do you think the practical application like behind um, this doctrine of entire sanctification and what it really means for like people like you and me and every other Christian that might be listening to this? Yeah, and, and part of it too is is it feels dumb to say, but it means you need to pray. Needs means you need to read your Bible. Means you need to find uh, sisters and brothers that are uh, empowering and critical sources for you. So a, a local church, you know, find a local church that respects you and challenges you. And those two things shouldn't be opposed; they should be organically together. Um, it means cultivating a spiritual life. Uh, it means. Um, yeah, and I, I think part of it is it's stuff we're already kind of doing. If we're trying to follow Jesus, we're already kind of doing that. And so we're already living into the new reality where Christ is king. And I think the practical aspect is that it gives, it doesn't give false hope because it doesn't say everyone will have this. But it, that's not the point of it. The point is to seek after this. 
and it essentially is to live the Christ life. And it tells us that anyone can do this. Uh, it doesn't put stipulations on, you know, only men can be sanctified, for example, and women can't be, or vice versa. Um, it doesn't put any uh, interest on one's uh, skin color or race. It's an entirely egalitarian doctrine where it is open to anyone and the spirit will work with anyone um, in putting to death the deeds of the body for the sake of new life in Christ. And so it should encourage us that it is not a, a carrot on the end of a stick that's perpetually being dangled in front of us. Rather, it is something, as, as Paul and others have said, it is in front of you. It is something that you can see with your eyes and hear with your ears. And it's an invitation, as the Gospel of John says, to come and see, to come and see what, what the Lord is offering. And so I think, practically speaking, it directly confronts sin and treats sin as a corrosive, terrifying thing, but also says there is a way through the darkness in Christ. And mm. I think without ta it takes sin seriously, but it takes Jesus more seriously. Mm. Right. Thank you for that. Um, we do have a question here from um, John DePue. Um, Apocalypse series says, I want to comment on Luther's dictum, um, simultaneously totally righteous and totally sinful. Does this have to play a part in our thinking of, um, present of our present sanctification? Um, he's referring to Jeff McSwain's theological work in similar sanctification. So what are your thoughts I have not read the book. Um, I made a point. I make a point of reading, and this is going to sound terrible. I don't like reading Luther. I think he's pretentious, and I think he's really not a very good theologian. Um, sorry, um, but having read having read about uh, Luther's, um, you know, the uh, what is it? The uh, I, there's a very specific dictum: always sinner or, or just in sinner or something like that. No, that's uh, Jordan Cooper's YouTube channel. Um, but it's kind of the idea of of always a sinner and yet fully justified. Now, I think on the one hand, um, I, I don't think Luther is conversant enough with New Testament theology for him to kind of argue that point. And it's not to say Luther is stupid. I would never claim that Luther is stupid. But I do think Luther is operating, one, with kind of a, kind of a, like I said, that kind of side-eye view of Roman Catholicism. And uh, I think he's a little too scholastic for his own good. But part of the problem is, and this is a big issue in New Testament theology and studies now is uh, Judaism and a lot of other uh, Judaism in the first century was believed to be a works based religion versus a religion of grace, as E.P. Sanders, the new perspective on Paul has shown. And there, so there's a lot of kind of assumptions within Luther's theology about Judaism and how Christianity is kind of this this new thing. And, you know, God is kind of done with the Jews and the Jews and their lives and all that sort of stuff. And so while I think there's something to be said about simultaneously totally righteous and totally sinful. I don't think it gives enough weight to the power of the spirit. Um, mm. And I think, um, I think there's, so on the one hand, I, I think Luther is onto something with the idea of kind of the duality of humankind, but I don't think it, it is, it has a robust enough doctrine of the spirit. And mm. I think uh, it's, it's it maybe a good way of saying this is he's too much of a Roman seven Christian and not enough of a Romans eight Christian. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be coy with that. I'm not, and I'm saying he is a Christian, you know, despite all his faults and we all know his faults, you know, with his anti-Semitism and all that stuff. Yeah. But a lot of the question in this debate on entire sanctification boils down to, and I'm being very broad and very general uh, for, you know, this, but are you a Roman seven Christian or are you Romans eight Christian? And as a Romans 8 Christian, I believe in Romans 7, but which one do you give up more sway to, you know, more interpretive kind of weight or, or theological freight? And so I think Luther's uh, point is contextually in his kind of world an interesting point, but it's not a point I think has uh, a lot of merit now. I think the debate has moved on, and I think um, there's just simply too much um, freight in his language to be entirely helpful. And I'm sorry to, if I'm pissing off my Lutheran brothers and sisters. Sorry, I just I just don't have the, the same reverence for Luther, um, uh, and I, I I don't think he he got to the point where um, I would want say him to be when it came to say Wesley. I think Wesley was much further on the on the on the right track than this, and so. Um, um, yeah, I, I don't know enough about uh, the author, uh, Jeff McSwain or McLean or whoever it was. Uh, I haven't read it, but that's just kind of off the cuff why I think Luther's model is just simply insufficient um, mm. to kind of explain this. And I'm not saying uh, Lutherans can't be entirely sanctified at all. I'm not making that claim at all. Um, 
It's just I, I don't think Luther is, is a very good paradigm or model for it because it just brings too much historical baggage. Right, yeah. Um, we do have another super chat here from Sethi Fredo. Thank you so much for your super chat and support. He says, um, if the majority of the teaching is um, we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God, I think he's probably referring to Roman, Romans or maybe yeah, the Bible. Romans 3, yeah. Um, yeah, Romans 3, 23. Um, it says, even if we give that 1% of sanctification is possible, wouldn't that make the entire the theology wrong? And Christ only died um, for 99%. So I'm not exactly sure what this question is. Um, do you have an idea? I can pause it a guess or two. I, I think um, the this, again, I think it kind of there's, and I'm just guessing, I don't know, just based on the question, I have no background knowledge of, of who uh, this, this person is or kind of their theological paradigm, but it sounds like there's kind of this reformed kind of John Owen kind of idea um, mm -hmm. where double jeopardy and all that sort of stuff. But I, I would argue that uh, the point I said earlier was because Christ, or rather the Holy Trinity has been active in, in creation, uh, so John 1 and all that sort of stuff, prevenient grace, the, those kind of models, has been active in creation to bring about redemption through Christ. That means that the death of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit um, are given to all people. And I don't think uh, Christ died only for the 99 because he also died for the one, because without the death of Christ and the giving of the Spirit and the work of, of God the Father, that you can even have that 1% to begin with. Hmm. So the 1% getting to where they are is contingent upon the revelation of the Holy Trinity and the resurrection of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit, Pentecost, all of that sort of stuff. And so, no, I, I don't think the question, um, or I, I think the answer is that, no, I don't think the entire theology is wrong because I think Christ died for the 1% too. And right. uh, we're, and it's not as if they are better or more elites or anything like that. Um, I, I, one of the jokes I tell people is, um, I think people will get to heaven and they'll realize they've been entirely sanctified and there's just less work to do for them. But I don't hmm. think they'll actually be going around thinking it like you get a merit badge, you know, like Boy Scouts, you get a little merit badge, oh, entirely sanctified, I can get <laughs> to heaven now, it's like, got my golden ticket. Um, I think there's kind of an implicit idea there as well. And I'm not saying the question's wrong, but I think um, I think it um, it presumes, I, I don't think, it, I, I think the, the work of God in this, uh, in provenient grace and all of that um, shows that God has already taken the initiative to redeem humankind and humankind is to respond into that. And the 1% who do respond faithfully, as just the example, um, are not better than anyone else. The goal is for that 1% to then help the 99%. The The, the whole point mm -hmm. is if you've been given this great gift by the spirit, then the, the point of a gift in the ancient context is not to hoard it for yourself. That's not how Christian ethics worked in the first century is you've been given a gift. Now give it to other people, gift that gift to others. And so mm -hmm. I, that's how, that's how I would respond to the question. I think it's a good right. question. I just, I'm not quite certain what uh, the person's getting at, but I think it's, it touches on a few things that are really interesting. Yeah, and it's great. I think you broke it down pretty well, and hopefully that helps um, with your question, C. Fredo. Another question here from Apologetics for All. Um, Josh Yen says, um, can people do good before being saved? Someone asked me the, this the other day and wanted to hear your thoughts, Nick. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think no, about it? Like, yeah, I think, I think yes. I, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I always wonder is, um, like, I'll hear, like, Carl say, because he's, like, flirts with Calvinism, and then he's, like, not never actually a Calvinist. Well, he um, flirts with Calvinism because Calvinism doesn't call him back, so who, he's got to keep flirting <laughs> with it. Yeah, something like that. Um, but he'll always talk about, like, whatever isn't done um, through faith is sin. I, I, I misquoted that, but kind of like that idea in Rome. I think it's in Romans 13 or 14. Um, um, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin, I believe it is. So, like, what are your thoughts on, like, that kind of idea? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I, I think I'd want to know what they mean by faith, um, mm -hmm. because I, I think, you know, for example, let's say Cornelius. Cornelius seemed to have some sort of faith in God. He didn't have the revelation of Christ. He didn't have this, you know, or anything like that kind of, here you go, here's the Christian faith, you know, kind of thing. But he certainly had faith in Israel's God, and he certainly was living a life that was pleasing to the to God. You know, it's not as if, you know, God sent Peter be like, you know, I really, this guy's doing horrific, evil things like Paul. We need to set him straight. It's like, no, this guy's, this guy is, is for lack of a better word, he's fumbling in the dark, looking for the light, go be the light to him. Hmm. And, um, I, I think the idea of it kind of treats sin as far as I understand the question, I could be completely wrong. It treats sin as, um, or treats faith as something that ironically enough seems to kind of be a part of the human mind that requires that you know, like you can't do good until you've been converted it's like well no there's that that presumes that the, that there's so much going on behind the scenes that is not seen 
the spirit is working on people to draw all people to Christ, right? And the work of Christ is sufficient to bring all people to Christ and all that sort of stuff, right? And so I think you don't need to have perfect faith in Jesus to bring glory to Jesus. Um, but I do think um, Cornelius' example, just as the example, is a is the is perhaps a, a paradigm for how God responds to people seeking Him, and then by their response are given new light to kind of keep coming along. That's how prevenient grace kind of works, um, but that requires an object of faith. That requires uh, the the incarnation. That requires the Christ event and all that sort of stuff. And I think. Uh, I think faith, anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. I'm like, well, okay. And in some sense, I think I agree with that, but I think it makes faith a little too rigid. It's like, when is the faith active or actualized? Mm. You know, is it, you know, is Cornelius's faith, was that pleasing to God? Well, it seems like it, you know, God sent Peter or sent, you know, sent Cephas to him, you know, that seemed to please God. Um, but I think what happens is we kind of, we kind of have this like, the human person is so rotten and corrupt. And believe me, I read the news, we are pretty rotten and corrupt sometimes. But we also kind of forget that um, if the spirit is at work in the world, drawing people to Christ, then that means that God is active and God wants these people to come to Christ. And sometimes God will use their good works. And I, mm. and I, I so I, I think that it's just a, it's a, it's a bigger question of, of pneumatology and stuff like that. And so mm -hmm. on the one hand, I say, yes, um, faith is, um, faith is required, but sometimes that when that faith happens for the person is a little more ambiguous just because mm -hmm. God works through means. And sometimes God works through people like Cornelius and sometimes he works through people like me and you. Fair enough. Um, we do have one more, probably time for one more question here from John. It says, um, how do you, how does Nick propose thinking about the relationship between justification and sanctification? Are they simultaneous? Are they sequential? Are they something else? Uh, what do you think, Nick? Yeah, I would say uh, if we're just to give kind of an analogy, um, uh, justification, at least in Paul's conception of justification, justification is the bomb that goes off and sanctification is the shockwave and the smoke that proceeds from it. And so I, I do take it as sequential. Um, I would, or I would say um, uh, sanctification happens as a consequence of justification. So justification is the act of God uh, through Christ to, I would say, depending on how you translate it, but I would say reveals God's character in a way that shows how God is because of how God acts. You know, you can tell who God is because God is the one who acts. And that tells us that God's character is good. You know, the, acti the activity of God shows us that God's, act, uh, God's attributes are good. God is a good God because of God, how God acts and how that is revealed in God raising Jesus from the dead, not allowing an innocent man to remain in the ground, brutalized and all that sort of stuff. And so I would say the, the uh, righteousness of God uh, is given and shown to be a liberative act apocalyptically because uh, justification thereby becomes the act or, you know, the punctiliar act, the bomb, that leads to sanctification uh, and sanctification. We now live, if you're in the process of being sanctified, you're now in the shock wave of the bomb of justification. So I don't know if that kind of helps. I think it's kind of, um, it is kind of, it is kind of Luther in some sense, but I do think I would argue that um, uh, justification is probably justification and sanctification are very similar. Uh, and I also wouldn't want to bifurcate the two of them. I, I'm kind of, so I'm wondering if my analogy actually works with how I think it works, but I may. I mean, John says you're sounding like Luther right now, so I don't know if. Well, then that. Luther maybe got something right, but um, I would argue that there is a, a maybe a sequence is probably the wrong word, a consequence. Um, but even then, I don't know if I like the idea of. Yeah, I, I don't think sanctification can be divorced from justification, but I also don't want to say that they are inseparable parts like two chains that are kind of linked together i think they're far more intertwined so i may, might even say they're they're simultaneous feels a little odd but mm -hmm. uh but yeah i haven't fully worked out how that works mostly because i don't know if i think yeah if paul had a fully orb doctrine of justification i also think the language of justification gets kind of muddied by the 16th century if i'm honest so mm -hmm. um but yeah i don't know if that I may need to think more about how justification works with sanctification, but whatever, however it works has to be grounded Christologically. 
Right. And I'm sure you have a whole PhD to kind of figure that all out. So we oh, a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for coming on today, Nick, and talking about entire sanctification. Um, feel free to share like any kind of like last thoughts you have. And also like if people want to follow you, how can anything they... going on? Yeah, uh, I, uh, my wife and I co-host a podcast called Split Frame of Reference, where we talk about um, the evangelical gender debate and go through passages of the Bible that seem to restrict women. So that is one place people can find me. It's on iTunes. There's also, uh, I'm starting a very small YouTube channel uh, called New Testament Theologist, uh, which means I just take the temperature of the Bible. And uh, I, I that, that's funny to me. It's not, I don't know how funny it is to other people. Um, so I started that up doing, probably going to do some videos on this subject, maybe some more. I've, um, I got one coming out on eschatology that I think that I'll probably have up maybe tomorrow. Today is Thursday, maybe tomorrow. Yeah, maybe tomorrow on Friday. We'll see. Um, and then they can follow me on Twitter, at uh, Nick Quint. That's Q-U-I-E-N-T. Um, yeah, those are, those are the places. Um, We'll see. I, I'm definitely not doing my PhD on this. I, I don't want to get in the Lutheran weeds. That's just, oof. There's, no. there's <laughs> certain fights I'm willing to have. Yeah. Uh, probably, um, uh, at this point, probably soteriology. Um, there hasn't been a lot of work done on the universal scope of the atonement in Paul. Uh, usually mm. it's kind of restricted to uh, systematic theology textbooks where it's a chapter. Um, so I'll probably be doing my PhD on that, uh, looking at uh, how other Jewish writers viewed the scope of the atonement and how Paul's conception of Christology uh, impacts the scope of the atonement. But that's in the very early stages. Um, it's something that will have to be argued about with a, a certain doctoral advisor and what he thinks and where he thinks we should go with it. Uh, but probably on the doctrine of the atonement uh, in Paul is probably a probably good guess. But we'll see what Mike says. Right. Well, it'll be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to wherever you are going. I encourage everyone to um, check out Nick. I did put a link to his YouTube channel in the description and in the live chat, so be sure to subscribe to that on the way out. And as always, if you're new to here in Apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe. You can leave a like. And if you enjoy, you can support us on Patreon.com, such as here in Apologetics for as little as a dollar a month. Um, your support means a lot. But Nick, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun, man. Brother, it's always a good time. Thanks for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Always, always, always. And thank you to John DePew, C. Fredo, Ethan, Josh Yen, everyone else that joined and super chatted. Thank you so much. Have a good one. God bless.